It is 106 on June 7th. I am Jordana Green. This is the Playing Politics podcast. Joining me is Patricia Lopez and John Rash, members and writers for the editorial board for the Star Tribune. Thank you both again for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Much to discuss. No doubt. (laughs) Less local politics today, but of course, many, many national politics. The big story that everybody's talking about Mm -hmm. and the countdown clocks on all of the national Mm -hmm. uh, news channels is, of course, James Comey's testimony. Washington bars are primed for this, by the way. They're going to go extra hours. I heard there are viewing parties for Mm -hmm. this. Yes. Completely. Well, I mean, I guess that's good because people are engaged and they're talking and they're Mm -hmm. listening. Uh, My greatest fear is that this will be Geraldo's vault, Mm -hmm. that James Comey will open his mouth and there will be no smoking gun or anything interesting. Uh, Patricia, we'll start with you. What do you think we're going to hear tomorrow? Well, you know, I'm I'm as much on tenterhooks as anybody because, you know, if there's anybody who knows all the secrets at this point, it's James Comey. Um, you know, he's been in the line of fire for a while. We know he kept copious notes of all his conversations and interactions with the president. We know he filed those memos in real time um, with the bureau. And so he's he's got a lot to talk about. The key issue is how much of it can he discuss in public? you know, versus what he can share in private. Um, My understanding is that Senator Amy Klobuchar has asked for some private testimony uh, because I think, you know, at this point, the most important thing is for the senators to hear what he has to say. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, as part of the public, I want to hear it too, but mainly I want it to get out um, so that they can at least assess the information and then decide how much of it can go public. So my concern is less with what we hear from him tomorrow than with what the senators are able to get both in private and in public and that they ask good, tough questions. But this could possibly, even if they did speak in private, the public could never know what they talk about. It's possible, yeah. Some of it will deal with classified information, but um, not all of it. Okay. And on the broader issue of President Trump and the potential involvement from his campaign and Russia, certainly that is the overall focus of this hearing, but also, of course, due to some dogged Washington journalism done by The Post and The New York Times, we do have a sense of some of the aspects of what former FBI Director Comey will talk about in terms of what President Trump said to him regarding the investigation of Michael Flynn and the hope that the FBI director would see it clear that uh, this didn't move forward anymore, according to Mr. Comey. So some of that is already known. So as much interest as I think there will be in James Comey in terms of what he says, I think it'll be quite compelling also to see the get a sense of the senators up there from President Trump's own party and to the degree that, you know, they, how they question the former FBI director And we might get a sense of just how strong the support is or isn't of the president in the United States Senate, which, of course, is controlled just like the House by his own party. And, you know, to what degree that senators begin to seem to distance themselves from the president at this point. So there are political dynamics from all aspects of this testimony that I think are going to be quite determinative in the days and weeks ahead. By the way, Jordana, um, it might interest, I mean, this will probably be common knowledge by the time uh, listeners hear this podcast, but um, James Comey's opening statement has already been filed with the Senate Intelligence Committee. Did he say anything? And so excerpts are being... they're Released. excerpting pieces mm-hmm. of it, right. They're, Can they're you read releases. a little bit for us? Um, there's one here uh, where Comey says, I told Trump I wasn't, quote, reliable for producing president the president's preferred outcomes. Trump responded, quote, I need loyalty. I expect loyalty. 
So maybe. just a little teaser of coming attractions. I think it's, you know, probably going to be enough for people to chew on. And in fact, we, I was watching today. I, was it what was happening today? Was the Senate Intelligence Committee? That was Dan Coats. They who were was testifying. He was testifying as today. well as Mike Rogers. Yes, but mm-hmm. they Dan Coats said in particular that he didn't want to say the information that he had in public. Albeit, he did not know if he had any legal standing to, I guess, plead the fifth. Well, you know, here's another interesting excerpt. Senator Marco Rubio um, specifically asked him, have you ever been asked to influence an ongoing investigation? Coates' answer was, quote, I'm not prepared to answer your question today. So maddening, but also, you know, if the answer was no, simple enough to say no. And later on, it led to an extraordinary exchange with Senator McCain, who used the word Orwellian to describe the lack of disclosure from the two people on the witness stand relative to what he had read in the Washington Post. And so, you know, that's, again, a sense of, you know, how the Senate might be reacting to this news and how aggressive they are and to the degree, really, how bipartisan this committee where they, you know, when you have at the top of it Senators Burr as as well as Warner of Virginia you know, they have made a pledge to try to go about this methodically and from a bipartisan basis. We'll get much more of a sense of that tomorrow. It just seems like nobody really wants to tell the truth. Could this all go away if there were subpoenas in place and the testimony was in private just with the intelligence committees? We may I don't fi- know that it would go away, but, you know, we'd probably get some more. Go ahead, John. Well, and we may find out, you know, um, I, I concur with Patricia and especially with Robert Mueller, you know, who, of course, has been tasked, you know, from an in- and independent investigative basis about this, where, you know, he will be able to subpoena and he will be able to look very deeply into this and all the potential aspects of this. So, you know, I have a sense that the truth eventually will come out. And, you know, as so many have already observed, if the president indeed is accurate in his denials that there really is nothing here, then he shouldn't have anything to fear. And indeed, the president should want to get all of the truth out because, if there isn't any kind of conclusive link or if this isn't as significant as some of his detractors would suggest, it would allow the president to advance his agenda and get back on track with the Republican-controlled House and Senate because right now nearly every other initiative except for health care is really stalled at, at the blocks. And, you know, I know Patricia has, has been looking into infrastructure week here, and, and that's mm-hmm. another example of where they're not able to... Very sketchy details. Yeah, the (laughs) details aren't necessarily there, and the attention isn't necessarily there in terms of their agenda, which is, you know, the way that any administration really needs it to be is when they have an initiative and they're pushing it forward, they want all of Washington, let alone the country, to be focused on that. That's not happening right now. I want to talk health care because right. the president was tweeting about the t- that today. Mm-hmm. I also want to talk Qatar, but you mentioned infrastructure. So let's yes. talk about that because the president is going to Ohio to supposedly detail right. this plan. He's, he's in, in Cincinnati mm-hmm. today. I don't think we can expect any details in the way one would normally think of that. Um, he did roll out one, one chunk of this, um, the only discrete part we have at the moment, which is his plan to privatize um, air traffic control systems. Okay. Uh, you know, those are the controllers that... That, you know, tell planes when they can land, when they take off, routes and all that. It's it's what provides the basic safety of our air traffic system. We need them. Uh, we, we need them. And, you know, I, I will say right now they have a good track record. There mm-hmm. has not been a single fatal crash of a U.S. domestic airline in eight years. Uh, and not that's close. not the only um, that's not the only metric. But overall, you know, we have a very strong safety record. Mm-hmm. There have been problems with modernization. 
And what they're saying is that by turning this over to a private nonprofit corporation, they'll be able to move faster um, in terms of modernizing. Now, I have some issues with that because, you know, the FAA, like many other agencies, has been starved of funding. Um, you know, they've had to make do with short-term extensions of their budget rather than the long-term reauthorizations that allow for long-term planning, which is what you have to do when you're talking about converting from a land-based radar to a satellite-based, you know, global positioning system, which is what we want. Um, that should not then become the excuse to privatize the system. Mm-hmm. If, if they can demonstrate that this will be better, safer, uh, more secure because this is part of our national security as well. It's not just, you know, you hopping the flight to, you know, Mexico or Canada when you want to. Um, then I then I think if they proceed carefully and the other uh, major requirement for us, I think, would be that they um, that this private corporation continue a commitment to smaller airports, smaller airports, rural areas that are not now and are probably never going to be profitable to serve. Mm-hmm. But we need to have that kind of equity in our air traffic system. You know, I think that. Uh Patricia explains well, and that's just one component of mm-hmm. what's happening with the infrastructure issue. And if you remember during the campaign, this was a significant uh, debate, and President Trump made some pretty significant promises, you know, in terms of rebuilding the roads and the bridges and the airports. And he spoke very specifically about LaGuardia and, and compared it to airports around the world, which are much more opulent and move much more efficiently. And made some big uh, promises in terms of trying to rebuild a lot of this. And, you know, I think it's indicative of some of the challenges of the administration that, you know, they are focusing on this early component of it, but there doesn't seem to be any significant movement towards the broader plan of investing what some had said might be up to a trillion dollars in infrastructure. It's no longer going to be that, by the way. Um, We're now down to $200 billion in direct uh, government spending, probably mostly in the form of tax breaks. breaks. Uh, What he's saying now is that that money will somehow leverage a trillion dollars um, in, yeah. (laughs) So, okay, color me a little bit skeptical. Nice if it happens, but Mm. I'm not going to hold my breath. Another uh, front with that actually had some movement was health care. But I saw the president today was saying that the Democrats are being obstructionist and we're going to get nowhere if the Democrats are non-participatory. They can't even get the the Republican caucus together. Come on. It seems like that's hard for the course in politics. So do you think there's going to be any movement? Well, we know he's not going to get help from the Democrats. Well, the Democrats are the smallest dog in this fight. Okay, so let's remember that, you know, two of the three branches are controlled by the one party. Um, they, the Republicans control the House, the Senate, and the presidency. That said, they do need some help from the Democrats because of division within Republican ranks. They're not uniform on this. When they go back home, they're starting to hear from constituents who are very nervous mm-hmm. about letting go of what they have in favor of something that it's not very clear to anybody what you know Trump care, for lack of a better word, would be. So we don't have any further clarity on this yet? Well, it does appear, and this is clarity within the last 24 to 48 hours, is the speed and pace at which the Senate is moving this is much quicker than anyone anticipated. They would like to have it done by July 4th. So we're talking about three weeks now. And while that isn't the lightning fast movement that happened in the House of Representatives relatively recently, it is quite quick. And as Patricia just mentioned, because of these divisions, it's likely that whatever the Senate does move forward could be significantly different than the House. It could reopen 
up the whole issue in terms of reconciliation when they try to get the bills to work together. So we'll hear a lot more about this in terms of the Democrats. You know, the Democrats, you know, certainly should acknowledge that the Affordable Care Act is having some tremendous challenges mm -hmm. right now. Now, where those challenges come from and if they're a reflection of the fact that insurance, you know, the insurance industry looks like it looks like this whole thing is going to unravel at this point, and they don't want to continue, you know, being exposed like this is a whole nother issue. But this was President Obama's signature legislation, so it does seem unlikely that there would be any Democrats who, you know, really look forward to repealing this at, at this point. Senator Schumer, who is the Senate Democratic Minority Leader in the Senate, did indicate yesterday that. You know, he clearly would like to work with the Republicans to try to, in in effect, you know, mend but not end the Affordable Care Act. But, you know, after seven plus years of campaign pledges, it seems likely that the Senate, to some degree, will follow the House and, and repeal it in full. I'm really dubious about that. I, I mean, I, I know they're moving faster, but the idea that they could um, fully vote to repeal within three less than three weeks, uh, maybe. That does seem lightning fast yeah, for members yeah. of Congress. No. And in fact, I wanted to talk a little bit about local politics. Mm -hmm. Members of Congress who are moving so slow, they're in a special session, they're not getting paid. Can you guys, I, I know that there's nothing breaking on this, but update where we are with our local legislators possibly suing the governor for not getting their paychecks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Among other things. Um, boy, that's, uh, you know, I've, I've covered 15 sessions and that was a new one on me, <laughs> the, the threats to defund one another. Um, the Republicans started started it with a um, by loading their tax bill with, you know, quote unquote, a poison pill that said, you know, you have to sign this tax bill or the Department of Revenue is defunded. Well, of course, the Department of Revenue collects all the funds for the rest of government. So that's a problem. You know, Dayton signs the bill, but then says, oh, guess what? You know, now I'm going to defund you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So now we have, you know, sort of a classic standoff. Uh, the legislature has threatened to go uh, to court. Um, my understanding is that Dayton would like to call a meeting uh, with all four of the caucus leaders. That would be, you know, Democrats and Republicans in the House and the Senate and see if they can come to some meeting of the mind before they go to uh, before they go to court, which I, I think it would be good for them to do. It's it's not good to get into the habit of going to the judiciary to settle all these issues. Is there a, is there a timeline on this, or do they have a court date? You know, there isn't the alacrity that existed a few years back when the government shut down, as an example, where there mm. was tremendous pressure from the public. But I think that, you know, with an election year coming up and with the legis legislators and gubernatorial candidates already jockeying for 2018, this is something that really sours the electorate. It's a wild card, and the people of Minnesota can and, and should expect more about what happens in St. Paul during the session. And the fact that you know they were able to get most of these bills through some degree of compromise to be able to get past the governor's desk and have some legislation to work with is looked at as relatively positive, but this has really soured the sense of any kind of accomplishment in St. Paul, and I think that the pressure is going to ratchet up to get it solved. But that being said, there isn't the hard deadline that has existed in previous disagreements be, you know, between the two sides. And then I had also heard, and just one more question on this, and then I want to get to Qatar, um, that the members of Congress that had found a way to get themselves paid, but the support staff was not being paid? Is there any truth to this? No, in fact, it's it's just the um, opposite. Okay, I good. think <laughs> there is a provision for non what they call nonpartisan staff staff right. does, that does not, um, you know, 
employed by either of the party caucuses. They would continue to get paid. Um, and this would get very technical, but mainly what's at risk here is all of the legislators pay and all of the partisan staff pay, which is a substantial, that that is the mm-hmm. biggest part of the legislature. I understand so, that, but the support staff shouldn't be punished because they couldn't get their work done. Yeah, you know, they're, they're just pawns in the game, Jordana. Mm, such a that's, shame. that's how it happens. That's how it happens with the government shutdown, too. Mm. There are lots of, you know, just sort of bread and butter employees, both partisan and nonpartisan. Suddenly their paychecks are at risk. They're, you know, they can't pay their bills. I mean, do, do you have an extra, you know, couple months worth of salary no. hanging around just in no. case they stop your paycheck? No. no please don't, yeah. WCCO. Yeah, <laughs> right. please don't. Right. That would yeah. be bad. That's why it's such a corrosive um, tactic. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about international politics. We're hearing that Qatar, four other Arab nations, then pulled their diplomatic ties with right. Qatar because Qatar um, is a, a sponsor of terrorism. They've closed they say, the, yeah. They, they say this, of course, uh, and they have a close relationship with Iran. Mm-hmm. Now we're hearing today that it might have been some kind of Russian either memo or leak that gave the four other Arab nations this information. Is there any truth to this fake news? Well, I think the first thing to say is when you use the term fake news there, that's the way that it should be used. Fake news is a real thing, and it's mm-hmm. a real problem. In it's that propaganda. It's, it's disinformation yeah. that is created to look like news to try to alter geopolitical dynamics. And it has had an effect worldwide. And you know what most analysts will say is that what Russia is trying to do more than anything when they engage in this is to try to sow confusion try to sow disunity among ostensible allies. And the Gulf Cooperation Council, which were these five Sunni nations as well as Qatar involved in in this, the fact that they're so disunified at this point, particularly when together they had a united front against Syria's Bashar Assad, who of course is backed by Russian President Vladimir Putin in terms of diplomacy and a lot of military might in incredibly nefarious ways, has has is now disunified, and especially the fact that there is a significant U.S. military base there that Correct. now you the know, largest faces, U.S. military yes. base yes. right yeah. in the Middle yeah. East. We have, yes. have ten thousand yes. mm-hmm. yeah. so, um, troops over there. And President Trump inserted himself in this very directly via tweet, as he often does, in that you know suggesting that this was part of the dialogue when he went over to Saudi Arabia, and that was completely crosswise with what Secretary of State Rex Tillerson had said in terms of once this dispute erupted, he had publicly said that he would try to adjudicate it and to try to get all the parties back on the same page because, after all, it's very important that they have unity, at least from the administration's perspective, particularly in the wake of the challenge from Iran as well as transnational terrorism there. So it's an incredibly complex situation that just got snarled a whole lot more. And so it is something that is very important, you know, I think for the administration to work on and have a unified voice. But as with many other dynamics in Washington and abroad, so far that isn't happening. Here's what concerns me, Jordana. Um, You know, Russia, whether or not they use disinformation tactics, they probably did. Every nation does. The U.S. has done it too. Uh, in the past, we've used, you know, the CIA has used disinformation in a number of, number of countries. The difference here and what really concerns me is that we have a president that may have acted on it. Um, he was bragging on Twitter that, you know, he uh, um, sort of cultivated, you know, this idea that uh, Qatar was involved 
um, in some kind of nefarious, you know, doings with terrorists. We don't have any evidence of that. We do know that a lot of the 9-11 terrorists had their roots in Saudi Arabia, and there have certainly been accusations of Saudi-based terrorism. So interesting that after Trump's trip, they would suddenly coalesce and surprise, you know, serve up um, cutter on a plate like this. That has been a strategic ally for the United States. It's why we have our base there. Um, that base in, in Qatar was vital during the Gulf War. Um, I'm curious about that. Then. Yeah. If, if Qatar does have a relationship with Iran and mm-hmm. is possibly uh, a funder of terrorism, why do we have a base there? Why do? Well, well in, we have other allies. They have in been the an ally, and, yeah. and they're a Sunni country aligned with the other Gulf countries, such as. United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and mm-hmm. Yemen and Oman, as an example. And, you know, the the charge from those Gulf countries is they're playing it both ways, or they have supported Hamas, as an example, which is aligned with the Shiites that are aligned with Iran, as well as um, Bashar Assad in Syria. And so, you know, that, that they would allege that, you know, that they have been involved, you know, in terms of supporting some of those groups, the Muslim Brotherhood, as well, which is why Egypt got involved in the countries that, you know, broke diplomatic ties with Qatar as well. And so, you know, my sense is those Gulf countries plus Egypt will probably prevail here as much as anything. Geography matters, especially here in terms of, you know, they have an air and a naval blockade. And, you know, as just one example, an estimated 40% of food gets into Qatar from Saudi Arabia. If that's all cut off, you have not just a diplomatic spat, but an existential crisis for your country at this point. So my sense is this may get solved relatively soon or, or you're going to have, you know, a civic breakdown there. And, and But this is something that, that I think one could argue moves back, you know, the coalition that President Trump was trying to talk about, you know, when he, when he was over in Saudi Arabia, because this kind of disunity is, is very challenging then when you try to have a united front against ISIS and al-Qaeda, as well as Bashar Assad in Syria. I'm concerned that he got played. (laughs) And now a vital U.S. strategic asset is at substantial risk, and we have nothing to replace it with. Um, On that positive note, mm. Patricia Lopez, John (laughs) Rash, lots uh, lots more to discuss, but but we are out of time for today on our Playing Politics podcast. You can find this, of course, on the Star Tribune page, as well as the WCCO uh, Facebook page and our website. Um, uh, Editors and writers, excuse me, contributors and writers to the Star Tribune editorial board, John Rash, Patricia Lopez. We could talk for a very long time, but we're going to have to pick this up again next week. Thank you very much. Thank you.